Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. Welcome, everyone, to the Mars Race Podcast, Life on Mars, Technology, Innovation, Entrepreneurship. Today, we've got a very special host, one person I've been following for a long time, Ben Tussle, I've been following you since you were a product hunt, you were a product lead there. Um, he went on, I think it was last year, 2019, to create MakerPad, a community for projects of no-code, low-code. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about MakerPad, introduce yourself briefly. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, uh, as you said, I'm, I'm Ben, and MakerPad is, we call it a learning community. So it's like a buffet-style community to learn about pulling together no-code tools to build and operate businesses without writing code, basically. We all, but if we are in the technology sector, like we are at Mars-based, we might know already what no-code and low-code is, but maybe we want to give a simplified version for those not in the know. Yeah, so it's had this term put on itself recently, which is like this no-code movement or the no-code space, low-code, uh, zero-code. You might see very like various terms of this, but it's essentially being able to create workflows or projects without having to write code. So more of a, a visual development style, uh, drag and drop tools. They're the types of uh, things that fall into the no-code space. And how about uh, what opportunity did you see when you were at ProductCon? When you did decide to quit, it was because the you know the acquisition by AngelList was something you were not very aligned with, or was it because you wanted to pursue some kind of entrepreneurial desire to create your own company or work on the projects that you were already seeing at ProductCon? Right, most of them you might have seen already there. Yeah, so actually, I was really excited about the acquisition with AngelList. Um, hmm. So I like I I really think they're a great company and I'd, lo I'd love that we were acquired there but I was a victim of my surroundings at Product Hunt so many people were launching things all the time fun things small things big things real businesses side projects and I just wanted a piece of that I wanted to be able to do it myself and at my time at Product Hunt I saw all these companies launch I helped some of them launch and then I was seeing things like Typeform and Zapier and Webflow and Bubble and I thought, well, maybe, I mean, one day I want to be a, a big, big hotshot CEO at some point. Um, so I wonder if I can use these tools to launch these amazing ideas I had in my head. So I sort of stitched these things together, launched a bunch of ideas, and people were interested or seemed to be interested, but no one ever bought anything. So I launched like 20 things. And no one ever bought anything. And I was like, right, something's not quite going right. I'm not going to be that big hotshot CEO that I thought. It's not this easy. What is, like, what's, what's going on? So I spoke to some people and the thing that they were interested in wasn't the actual ideas. It was how I was putting them together with the no-code tools. So how I was making it look real when, when it was real. But how did I make it look and work like a product when I couldn't, didn't write any code for it? Um, so that's sort of when the light bulb went off and I thought, right, okay, well, I'll, I'll just teach people how to do this thing. I'll just build ideas, record my screen, and then show them the step-by-step -step of how I actually built those things. Actually, one of the things that I really like about MakerPad is 
that it's a platform, right? So um, in entrepreneurship, you know, it's very sort of easy to create services. It's less easy, but it's still a very viable way of being an entrepreneur is to sell a product, right? But most of the biggest companies out there, they have managed to either become or to succeed at being a platform for others, right? I mean, Amazon, e-commerces are perhaps the best, uh, the best, the best way, but e-commerces in the... In, uh, insofar as they are a B2B2C or they allow other commerces to sell on their platform, the App Store, iTunes, things like that, they have been very successful because they can, they can, only, they can arbitrage, they can create a, a spot for you know, new companies um, coming up, they can even promote, given their, you know, their exposure and the rates, they can promote other na- nascent businesses and all of that. Is that what you were pursuing when you, when you pivoted and you created uh, MakerPad or was it purely coincidental? So I first started something that was called New Newco at the time, which was essentially the same thing. It was tutorials, people paid to get access. And then I had a different mindset back then of you have to have this certain startup trajectory you have to do like the yc stuff and it has to be certain growth every month um and then the company just sort of got away from me and i didn't really know what we were building anymore and i was like what is this thing i don't really know and then i took a break and decided to like essentially focus on doing less so i thought what could i do that meant it would be a one-to-many relationship it's not like a service like you said where it's like me swapping my time and chatting to someone consulting about no code it's more like how can i do one thing that then multiple people can get access to so having this as like a content platform was definitely intentional uh to start off with but now we have other people posting their projects and showing off what they're doing so people are learning from other people not just from the makeupad team as well so that's that's like a a very good side effect of building a strong community um, on MakerPad. And what, what would you say was a tipping point for the community? Because, you know, maybe it took a while, not too much to take off, honestly, but now you've reached 20K, uh, 30K followers on your personal account. MakerPad is growing in terms of projects, in terms of the quality as well. But most importantly, recently you've opened a fund. That means investors have already started pouring their money into no-code and low-codes, right? What was the tipping point for the MakerPad community to sort of become well-known and in the in social media and in the in the makers community yeah i think it was probably around this time last year which is when i went from side project to full-time so it was a side project for like eight eight or nine months and then raised a small round to to hire some people but that whole january to september last year 2019 it was just getting more and more popular and i wasn't pushing it too much because it was just like a side a side project that was doing really well for me and the market was becoming more and more aware of no code so the market was pulling it out of me and that helped make it grow in of itself but then when we really switched to okay this is a real thing this is a real business this is a full-time business now it's not just like a little side project this is a real a real community we've got to make a make a go of it then that's really when we were pushing it and we've seen like a lot of growth since then, for sure. And how about the, the involvement of, of bigger companies? Because um, I've been talking to mostly uh, the role of developer relations, uh, right, are the kind of person in a company that would interact with MakerPad and these kind of communities, right? I know the people at, at Slack, for instance. I know the people at 
at, at Typeform, which is a pretty common tool to build these kind of projects. Uh, are they really involved with this, or it's just they're just talking the talk? Are they either part? Are they part of the Makerpad community? Uh, all of them? I don't know specifically of the roles of each of these people, but I know that we've got people on like the growth team at Segment, for example, or the growth team at Lambda School are they're all people who I see in the community. We've got I know there is someone from Slack who's in the community, but I don't know specifically whether it's like the developer relations people, but also there's, there's lots of free content on Makerpad. So we see thousands of people look at the site every week and lots of people probably just dip in and out as and when they need something or they want to figure out something or they're looking for something specific. So it's hard for those to figure out whether it's like, whether they are using Makerpad or, or not, unless they're a pro member really. And how about the involvement of the, of the, the, investors right we uh i briefly introduced the the fund you might want to talk a little bit more about it but um i failed to understand how investors being one myself but i'm i'm techie i understand why i would put money in in no code projects but why would they do it especially traditional investors because you've got a, an interesting mix right you've got people from from tiny which they are you know mostly investing in or buying bootstrap companies as a company we really admire but you've got also corporate uh, venturing funds. You've got more traditional or industrial investors like CBRE. Um, how, this, how does this mix kind of like hold together? And why would traditional investors invest in no-code or low-code projects when I don't think most of them will understand them? So I don't know. I think there's two, there's two sides of it. One is investing in companies built with no-code tools, which Makerpad would be one of those companies. Right. and. We have investors. Tiny is one of our investors, as long as as well as Ernest Capital and, and a bunch of other angels. So, our platform can scale, is revenue generating, and building community. So, something like that built on no code tools. It doesn't really matter what we've built it on. It just it matters what like what we're doing with that. But there's the other side, which the fund that I've launched, which is the Makerpad Fund, Makerpad.fund. That is a rolling fund, which means that every quarter you subscribe an investment amount per quarter, essentially, to help spread that out over the year. And we invest in companies built like for the no-code ecosystem. So, so the companies that are actually like the people in no-code are using, these are the companies we're looking at. We're not necessarily looking at projects built with no-code tools. We're, build, we're looking for the actual no-code tools themselves. Mm-hmm. And one of one of the things that I was I was struggling to to when we you know I, I talk a lot to to investors being an investment myself and and some of them are they're having the same kind of conversation about intellectual property or the ownership of the code that they perhaps like back in the day they wouldn't use open source to build startups right now they're having these problems with with um, with no code and and low code right it's Okay, what happens when you know there's a change in the API of uh, Type Four when they change in the in the terms or the pricing of this? Will the startup break? Right? Why am I investing in this kind of of companies? Are you having this sort of conversation as well with the with the rest of investors of your fund? How how would you explain it to them, for instance? Yeah, I mean, I don't. It's the same with even people build who want to build a startup. They're thinking, why? Like, will this work for a million users when I have a million users? I think, well, yeah. 
have you got 10 users yet? Have you got 100 users yet? Like, you don't need to worry about a million users when your first problem is getting to 10, getting to 100. Correct. And it's like things change. Things change every year, every month, every week. There's always new things. If you think of the MVP of uh, Airbnb, that would not have worked. That wouldn't have, like, the site wouldn't work if there was probably 10,000 people on there at the same time. Like, that just wouldn't have happened. So they go from like air, air beds on the floor to this huge company now, which has changed over time. Their tech stack has changed. They're probably using different tools. They use it up to a point until they're figuring out, okay, this tool now is stopping us. We need to shift from this to another thing. And that just is the case with startups. I think it's, it's going to be quite rare to start building something. And then in 10 years' time, you're still using the exact same tools, code frameworks, like languages, whatever it is. It's, things are going to change over time. So I don't think it's a point of thinking, well, what will happen? What I think about is if we wanted to move off Airtable as our database, can I download all that data? And the answer is yes. So I feel confident to use Airtable because if Airtable said, right, we're going to shut down next week, then I know, okay, well, let's just start downloading CSVs of everything. So we have a backup and we've got everything there. So I don't think that should really be an issue. And if if a founder relies on the tool that they're using to be the va- like to be the value proposition for what they're selling, I think that's already a dangerous place to be. Like it should be the value for the customers or the end product is what the thing is. And you should be able to create that in many different ways um, with different tools anyway. Yeah, we'll cross the river when we reach the river, right? That's yeah. that's one thing. Um, but uh, the same way a few years back, investors were concerned, well, oh, you're using blockchain, I don't want to invest in this, or now they will do it. Or and 10, 15, 20 years back, was, oh, you're using open source, I will not invest in this. I think we're having the same conversations right now. But um, obviously, leveraging on no-code tools or a no-code MVP can give you the benefit as an entrepreneur to get get something out there to start testing your hypothesis and maybe start getting some early validation as in email email addresses some even paying customers with some integrations or whatever even build a community around you but you so that you don't have to invest in a full product right but on the other side there's a trade-off that you might lose this sort of ownership you don't have a code but it's not really necessary in these early stages of the conversation right so one of the one of the questions I'm getting from a lot of investors, like, yeah, but how do you gradually replace all of these? Or how do you get rid of the no code? When is it the right point to start getting rid of no code or low code and start building your own product? What's your take on it as an advocate of no code? Yeah, well, first to your previous point, that I think you should always go where you can to build something, get actual customers before you then look at raising money or doing the bigger thing and and doing it that way. Like with no code, it gives everyone the potential to do that. Even if you have to build using code eventually, you can then go to developers and say, look, I've already built the first version of this. It does this thing already and this is how it works. You can speak to them more on their level because you've actually done the building. So you know how some of the things work, how some things shouldn't work, should change and and that way um so i forgot what i forgot what the other question was now sorry oh yeah it's it's more about the 
how to replace gradually what's oh, the, yeah. the right point in yeah in which you will start building your own product to start replacing the dependencies yeah so i think people don't necessarily realize when things are not going well so something could be going badly or just not really really well and they continue to chip along and go and carry on as they are but it's only when things go really really well that you know that things are going well and i think a company like lambda school for example they they got to like 3000 concurrent students 50 million dollars in venture funding they are running a coding boot camp essentially like a coding school basically built on no code tools so a combination of Airtable, Typeform, WordPress, uh, Retool, a bunch of others. And there isn't necessarily a point where you have to go, right, everything gets off this and goes on to this. It's, it is more gradual and, d- and things do change and can be done that way. So if things are going really well and you think, okay, well, Airtable might break at 50,000 rows. I'm at 10,000 rows now. So if we continue growing, in a couple of months, I think that we're going to have to think about what is the next phase of this, that we've had this in MakerPad the last few months, thinking yeah. what happens when we've got too many CMS items in Webflow? Do we wait for Webflow to increase the scalability of their platform, which could be two months, it could be two years, who knows? Yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, what is our backup? What's, how do we get this more scalable, at least for the next 12, 18 months? And let's just worry about that piece. We don't need to now rewrite the whole platform in custom code, hiring two developers, paying for their salaries just to keep it so that we know for the next 10 years it'll work. We just need to know the next 12, 18 months. Let's get to that point. And then when we get there, if it's working, we can see what's working, what doesn't work, and then move and do the next phase. Actually, in, in one previous, uh, previous episode, we interviewed the, uh, Ariel from Microverts. You might know them. It's another coding bootcamp. And uh, he actually taught, uh, talked about how they sharded Airtable because they were reaching the limits of like, no, fuck it. We still want to be on Airtable. We're just going to do some sharding here. And they, they invented sort of a layer on top of it to, to distribute the different, um, the different uh, data entries and to be able to have more records right on Airtable. So maybe we'll see also some tools built on top of that so that no code and local projects will be able to to um, to kind of like still be using products that they were not originally intended for that. But uh, I don't know if that's some kind of projects that you're seeing in MakerPad. Would that be a kind of project that would make it to MakerPad, for instance? Or Yeah, I mean, that's something we would look at investing in as well. Like if, if there's companies being built to help no-code scale, then that's something we're definitely interested in and really interested in looking at, really. Like with that Airtable example, that's one of our, that was one of the options we thought of is you can just duplicate the base yeah. and have another one and then just say, okay, well, after it finished populating this one, let's just, all the fields are the same, just shift it onto the next one. And then that's where the next lot of users are kept. But it's just, yeah, you've got to think through some of these things and, and, how, uh, and how it's going to work for you. Yeah, then there's this trade-off between, you know, keeping the, the low-code low and no-code spirit or actually making an over-engineering to kind of like, well, maybe it's easier to move on to a MySQL database already or not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, I think a lot of people in no-code, because we because lots of us cannot code, so we think, I've got to make this work with no-code tools now. So then there's like a <laughs> workflow with like 15 different apps doing different things all over the place. Then it's like, oh, wait, this is 
it may have been easier for me to learn to code to do this piece or hire someone to to do that but it's some of it does get complicated quickly especially when you're in the more advanced stages but most of the i think that's probably like the 10% of of the community is is sort of looking at that thing and companies like parabola paragon and things like that that are really helping this end piece of you can sort of code and not code and touch APIs and do different data functions and things like that. I think they're the ones that are, are going to do well in that, in that space. Yeah. We talked a little bit about the, uh, about the motivations for investors to start investing in these kind of projects, but what I'm really interested or what we're interested here as a bootstrap company is it's always bootstrap companies. Right. And I think that from my personal point of view, that low code and no code really helped I think they're better suited for bootstrap companies, calm companies, companies that will grow over time, but they're not, they don't need to hit, they, they're not forced to hit, you know, hockey stick growth. They are not forced by investors to, to, to drive faster and they can do things a little bit better because I would imagine that at a certain point, having a clusterfuck of 10 different platforms on no code, if you need to hit VC scale, then it can become a nightmare, right? Because one thing breaks, then 10 other things break. Whereas with a bootstrap company, you can pause, you can reflect, you can sit back and maybe, okay, let's just stop here for a bit. Let's rethink all over it again, change it here. I don't know what's your take because you seem to be very fond of bootstrap companies, but at the same time, you also raise a a small round for MakerPad itself. Yeah, so I think it's similar to what we've been talking about where... I'm thinking of the next 12, 18 months of like good growth. Can we do this on the no-code stack? And our answer, answer is yes. Yeah. If we had a VC, if we had lots of VCs who were thinking growth at all costs, they would say, okay, that's a nice number that you want to get to in 18 months or looking at how do you 10X, 100X that in the next two months? Like, how would you do that in a shorter scale, like really, really quickly? And for us, that's like, well, we probably have to start building all these extra systems and getting more custom code and doing things like that. And that's what growth at all costs may come down to. That could be a cost is less no code stuff. So the bootstrap idea is definitely positioned to benefit most from no code when you're starting off, because like you said, you can go out and you can, build something, you can get customers, you can get paying customers, which is the the biggest form of validation. If you've got paying customers, you can go to a company like Ernest Capital, who would give you like revenue-based financing, or there's other options that is like debt or other things that like angel money and family and friends, or like just raising money from customers. If you have customers, they are a great way to um, to get cash in the business. There was I think Rome Research do this where they have like a yearly based pro- like yearly based price or they've got like the believer plan which is like $500 versus 100 so $500 that'll give you an account for 5 years and it helps give them um cash in the bank so that they can for the next 12 months build and just focus on that rather than raising more VC and doing more other things like that so there's definitely lots of different options there and I think no code helps a single founder especially, just have a product, get it in the hands of customers quickly and build something that they really want. I envision that, that this in a maybe, maybe more immediately, maybe more um, 
you know, in, in a shorter time that, than, than a longer time, it will become sort of the PowerPoint back in the day or a video demo back in the day or uh, some sort of HTML, CSS demo we're using nowadays sometimes to, to validate and to have like user interviews and all of that to sort of uh, validate your, your MVP before you build your product, right? So it will be like, okay, I don't know how to code. I don't have a technical co-founder. So therefore, I like the whole idea of democratizing coding, even though it's not really coding, but at least making the building of apps more accessible to everyone. And that ultimately, that's a, some, uh, something I wanted to bounce off you is like, it's bringing less technical people into a market that it's maybe not yet prepared for them so much, but their vision is so outside of the box that will maybe this will be a stepping stone for the new technologies to come. I don't know what's your take on this. So whether this, um, this whole new diversity of roles coming into, into building or putting blocks together to create the new companies, do you think this will profit eventually the, the ecosystem as a whole? Yeah, definitely. I think if you gave everyone the ability to create their own piece of software, like so many people have different experiences through life and experience at work that their unique view on something can be actually put into the world and put into like a product that they could sell. Like I've seen things built on MakerPad that I would never think of. Someone built an app about how to remember to water your plants and things like that. And for some people that might be like, oh yeah, that's quite an obvious, like cool little app that is just for yourself. I would never have thought of that. And maybe there's not going to be a VC based big app in the app store that would be that because all you need is a simple like input function, some reminders and some like little gallery that you just use yourself. Like not everything has to be this huge, like growth at all costs type of, um, zero sum win for an app and i think like you said before with the pre-seed and the deck and the prototype people used to spend weeks months on a prototype to make it look like something that was working but now you can actually build something that does work so i would think the earlier stages of financing or stages of companies pre-seed seed these can all be built with no code and should be built with no code that like if they can be, if you're not, if you're driving, if you're making self-driving cars, obviously you're going to probably need some technical help there. But if it's, if it's a similar model, like a marketplace type model, a membership type model content, a small app that does certain things, you can definitely get quite far in the early stages with, with no code. Great. Let's talk about community because uh, there are probably certain aspects of community building that you, you took from your past experience, your past spell at uh, Product Hunt. Um, what, was the, what would you say was the most valuable thing you learned at Product Hunt that you're using at MakerPad in terms of community building? I think there's mostly... There's probably one thing that I really took away, which was just lead by example. So mm-hmm. if you're not the one... Answer, asking questions in a thread, you can't expect other people to ask questions. If you can't ask, so a product and an example would be people posting their projects all day, every day. Some were really technical and some weren't so technical. But if we had not many comments in there, I would go in and ask almost almost stupid questions and say, "This is cool. How did you like create that logo?" Or just something that's not quite. If I'm not technical enough to know the AR, VR backstory of this, mm-hmm. what questions can I ask that I find interesting about this thing? So 
doing that helped other people realize, oh, I don't have to say something really specific about like the tech behind it or have to sound really smart. I think like in Hacker News, for example, lots of comments are like, this is how I'm really proving the point that I know more than the other person about this thing. Whereas Product Hunt was more of like a, oh, this is cool. Like, how do you like, tell me how you did that? Because I kind of want to learn how to do that thing too. So it was just trying to get those bits of information out of people on on their projects, whether it was technical or not. Um, so with no code, it's being open and sharing, oh, this thing, I did this thing this way. Cool, you could do it this way too. Awesome. How do you do that other thing? Um, so leading by example has been one of the things that I think is big in community. And you notice it if you think, well, I haven't commented on the lot like on the on the forum for a month and then you might see comments go down it's not necessarily just because you're not commenting it's because other people don't see as many people commenting on things i think if you're a community manager and you comment on 50 threads in a forum in your head there's it's really busy with your comments but in someone else's head they're only looking at one or two threads probably Yes. So they just see your comment. So they think, okay, cool, I can comment too. But they're not looking, oh God, look, Ben's literally commented on every single thing, unless they're looking for that, which is fine. But the majority are looking at one thread and see your comment and see, cool, I can jump in too and, and like it, comment myself. So that's a that's like a a strange thing that like flipping the flipping the roles really changes how you look at that. Exactly. And I think the communities need to be a reflection of their founders, right? And one of the things I like about Brother Khan is that actually Ryan is very active on posting the, yeah. the products himself on Twitter. Uh, I think he's actually, you know, he's also posting on the uh, voting stuff and, and promoting it. He's a, user, he's a user, right? Yeah. We curate the community in Barcelona. It's a Slack community for entrepreneurs and startups. And, and I'm pretty active there. I'm one of the most active users just because I like asking questions. That's why your answer resonated with me because uh, most, more often than not, I just go there. It's like, hey, I need a good lawyer for this or I need uh, a freelancer to design a logo. Uh, who can help me, right? They're like, dude, you're the curator of the community. You should know everything. It's like, well, I'm, I'm part of the ecosystem. I'm just one actor more. I happen to found this, but um, um, that's why I think that's why I think it resonated with me. So uh, I'm 100% aligned with that. But yeah. And this is one thing you took from Brother Khan. Sorry, you want to say something? No, I was just going to say it's it's funny that like if you if you go on Twitter and you say okay, what um, podcast microphone should I buy? People will give you recommendations, but if you type that into Google, there's a bunch of ads. It's just like it's not really curated for you. But whereas oh. on Twitter, your your followers are likely people you are have, like have shared interests with, and you you yes. will like you will assume that those recommendations are higher value and have a higher like interest point with what you're thinking. So you, those are already more valuable than a Google search, for example. So someone in any of these communities, when you're saying about, do you have a lawyer or do you have someone to do a logos thing? You re- you are relying on the quality of the group that you're part of, the community with a shared interest, which is why you're both there in the first place. So you're thinking that actually they might be more aligned with what you're thinking and also you may not be thinking of a a logo designer two months ago but now you are and then it's just like has anyone come across anyone recently if the same person comes up again that's an even stronger signal it's like 
the timing based as well. Yeah, correct. Actually, when I need some recommendation, something like headphones, uh, that was a good example. It's like I would ask this community, then maybe I'll go to Twitter for a you know broader audience, yeah. and then eventually I will just go to either Facebook or Google. But I know that there the recommendations are so diluted because they are not so much personal. So I don't associate that much with that kind of people, maybe, or they're not. We don't have shared interests, as you say, like. So I would totally 100% agree on word of mouth recommendations from people from your community because essentially you've got shared interests. Yeah. How about the things that you have built, uh, you have learned along the way in MakerPath? Because it's really hard when you start a new Twitter account for your company or even for yourself, you got zero followers, right? Or for the sake of the argument in, in whichever other social media or platform you want to build. So how, to, how did you overcome this feeling of I'm writing for nobody? Um, I never really ha have or had a strategy to try and get more followers on any social account. So the fact that anyone was following me was like, oh, like this is a bit crazy. And I think it's insane that 30,000 people are following me now. This, like, I didn't ever try and get there. When I was at Product Hunt, people followed me because I shared interesting products or I could get them on a the homepage. So that was my early start. But now, I only have a tweet from from like for things that I like. I don't try and have a strategy or a, a special format that I use. And lots of people on Twitter do. They have like, oh, I'll do quotes and have yeah. the same type of quotes about the same thing over and over again. It's That's like buffer strategy. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I get it. That's fine. So I think it's you do have to think about who your who you want your audience to be or who you want your followers to be. And is this thing valuable to them? One of the best Twitter accounts is Steve Sugar, who they he does Tailwind CSS and refactoring UI. So he's a design design for developers, basically. And the best tweets he did were they had a like specific format, which was this is like a design tip, and it would have an image which would have a this is bad, this is good, and that was just it. There was no link. It was just like this is a design tip. And he would do that maybe once a week. And then all the other tweets of his were talking about design, talking about developers and design. They're all fairly like relevant to that interest group. Um, and he built a, a, quite a big audience on there. I don't know how many followers he has now, but that's where he did that. And it wasn't like every link was about, hey, click this link to sign up for my thing. It was just like, this is actually a tweet that is helpful in itself to just be a design tip. So. Thinking things like that, I think, which are interesting, but I definitely don't. I mean, I don't even do those myself. Yeah, it was not so much about the strategy. It was, um, it was more about the psychology of having to confront the situation that nobody might be reading you at the beginning. Sort of when you're starting a new blog, nobody is literally visiting your website. So, how do you overcome that situation? Because one of the things that we know as community builders is that it compounds over time, but you need to be there in the long run. So, if you quit too early, if you start succumbing to the feelings of, oh, this is not going to work, nobody's reading, I've been blogging for 10 weeks now, I have no visitors, I have no followers, no validation whatsoever. What kept you going in the beginning, in the early stages of MakerPad? Yeah, well, I think I was lucky in that I could use my personal Twitter for promoting stuff on, on MakerPad. But I think it's trying to think through, okay, if you want to get to step 10 and you're at step one 
you can't get to step 10 without going through step two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Like the first bit is, okay, let's get one person to, to read this thing this week, or let's have 10 followers this week, or let's try and get to 15 followers. Let's try and get to 20 followers. It's like you said, that compounding of trying to do that and realizing that there is no shortcuts and you do just have to do that. But it's also use that as the time to test things that work for you and are easy for you to produce and to put out there quite easily. And if you tag certain people, like not going around tagging loads of people at the same time, because everyone hates that and you'll never get any followers that way. Yeah. If you sort of have one tweet and you tag and you tagged like a brand that you did like a, a design critique of, or you did like a landing page review or something like that. And you tag the brand. If you think of some smaller brands like MakerPad, if someone did that for MakerPad, we'd likely share it. And then from there, you might start like getting people who are interested in landing page critiques, interested in MakerPad, who then find you and start following you. But it's it takes time, and no one no one wants to read something from someone who's got one tweet. Like you need to produce the content to to be able to attract the people in the first place. So. It just it takes time, and I I don't really have good advice there because I I never really thought about it at the time, so I'm not I'm not a great person for that. I assume you might have or some of the people you've hired because you, you said you raised the uh, raised some money to to hire some internal team. Is there somebody advising you on this, taking uh, taking care of you know marketing growth or something like that? What's the composition of MakerPad team now? So we've got four full time and seven part time. Um, And everyone, almost everyone, came from being a community member first. So everyone was a MakerPad member, and then we then hired them. Um, we actually don't have anyone looking after marketing or growth. I feel like we should. We did um, advertise for a role, but we decided that it should be baked into everything we do. It shouldn't be necessarily someone thinking of launch strategies and, and marketing things yet it might be it might change soon but everything should just be really shareable so if it's not shareable and people don't want to share it then we've done the wrong thing in the first place so we want it to be naturally something to share and shouting about what our members are doing rather than stuff that we are doing or this is what we've done this is what we've done it's more like this is what our members have learned to do Actually, you mentioned the thing about the shareability a few times in the conversation. So I think that must be ingrained into your DNA or your values, right? What are the values of the MakerPad community? Um, so we are actually going through like actually writing these things down right now. Um, That's why I'm asking hired... because I didn't see them. <laughs> yeah, so we've, uh, yeah, we've hired someone to do that. Um, it's difficult because there's, I mean, I don't want to think about all the like top fluffy stuff. It's more like default to action and just be really helpful. So if we're helpful in making people get to the, like if they come and join MakerPad looking to do something, if we can't get them to help them do that thing, then we've already failed with that person. Like if you can get them to do something that they were never able to do in the first place, that's what we want to be. That's what we want that sort of magical moment to feel like is oh i could never build anything before but now since i joined makerpad four weeks ago i've now built my first app like we need to figure those things out so anything that's in the way of that is is not a value so yeah defaulting to action 
helping, like be overly helpful. And we've, we're a remote team. So over communication is a key thing that is difficult. Um, and just like putting your hands up when you fuck up. I do it all the time. I say, I did this thing really wrong recently. So I apologize. Like I've got a habit of waffling or talking too much, not really getting to the key points and then expecting someone else to like know what's going on in my head and coming back with something different. And I'm like, that's not what I, what I was thinking, but I didn't tell them. So how can I like, how that's not their fault. That's my fault. Of course. No, and um, public accountability really helps. You have been really transparent with the way you run uh, MakerPad. I think that's something that, you know, folks, the likes of Buffer started back in the day and a lot of companies uh, followed. And like as, as, as a company, we, we like to, to be overly transparent. I think this brings a bigger change in the industry and, and something that's yeah. beneficial for us all. A couple of questions to wrap this up. The first thing is, is something I, I like to ask to people that are so transparent like you and 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 community builders are like when they open up so what's been your worst day as an entrepreneur um realizing that i was the problem and i was getting in the way of the team <laughs> so I, it was going from like this maker to manager transition and i'm still in the middle of that transition but i was trying to go i was trying to build everything and then thinking things were going too slowly but then i realized it's my fault. Like I'm, I'm the one going too slowly or doing things that aren't working. I should be stepping out of that, helping other people do their other things and not be building the product as well as trying to run the team. Because at a certain point, you become the bottleneck because you need to be taking decisions and you know your time is best spent making decisions, but you don't like taking decisions. You like building stuff, right? So yeah, transition as a CEO, your time is divided between you know things you have to do, which is 90% of the time or even more, and things yeah. you like doing is like ah uh, these tiny bit fractions right yeah and how about the biggest fuck up what's the biggest fuck up you've done Techno technologically speaking maybe oh, um if you can't quantify it if there's like a big loss there's something we can quantify but i mean i break things almost weekly on the makepad site it's just lucky that no code is so quick to fix yeah people don't really realize it but i've many times where i've sort of deleted a bunch of cms items of tutorials or changed i think i changed one thing on design but then everything is open to non-pro members or everything is closed i've done all that multiple times so it must be some combination of that now maybe uh, all of these mistakes sort of accumulate and they they, they show how you are really uh, more needed in the management side, not so much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It happens to me all the time. I try to be hands-on on like things I like doing, and then I fuck up so much that my partners are like, "Dude, you, you should stop getting into like you know editing blogs or doing the, yeah. that because you fuck up. Your your focus should be somewhere else, right?" But uh, exactly. exactly, I think that letting go of your baby it's kind of complicated <laughs> when you transition to a more like managerial role. Um, anyways, well, uh, Ben, thank you very much for your time. Uh, best of the luck with your project or if there's one validation that you need you need to know funnily enough i've been listening you know uh, we've we've recorded 20 podcast episodes so far in 15 of them no code has popped up randomly in the conversation it was not even part of this of the subject but it was mentioned there it's like the other day i was i was sort of thinking like wow this has been mentioned in a lot of episodes some people would bring it up spontaneously so i think that's sort of a, a validation of of what 
of what you can expect in no code world. So any any parting words, any any things you want to share with regards to the future of MakerPad and the fund? Yeah, I'm just really excited about what no code can do for everyone. Um, and yeah, feel free to check us out on makerpad.co. We we're trying to we've launched a, a light version of the pla- of the plan that people can can try out. And we've got the fund at makerpad.fund. You can see our, we've got a deck, we've got a no code report, we've got a memo, we've got all sorts of stuff there. So yeah, feel free to check all that out. Ben, thank you very much. Best Thanks, of luck with, uh, with your projects and have a nice week. Bye-bye. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. We are Mars-based, an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you?